0: Is that better? Hey. Okay. Well, we won't start that over. But uh, anyways, no, you all have some really good kids. Uh, All the kids that came, it was a lot of fun. I just also want to take a quick moment to thank everybody who helped out with VBS. Uh, They are the ones that you need to be applauding for. So if you'll give them just a hand real quick. If you're in here... I know Charla is working with our children's ministry again. She did five days with kids and then has them again today and tonight. And uh, just a lot of effort was put into that, and it ran really well. I thought. Um, We had Carolyn taking some amazing photos, and so if you want to come tonight, there will be a slideshow, and she just did such a great job. But um, I do feel like I have to do a disclaimer because there was some tampering done to one of those images, and uh, you know who you are, but if you saw my Facebook, There was scripture put like way out of context on one of the photos. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just look up my Facebook page and uh, you'll see uh, just it hurts to see that image. But, uh, you know, won't say who it was, but it rhymes with Gracie May, And, uh, you know. But uh, anyways, no, it's a lot of fun. So anyways, uh, we're going to get into this. Um, We're going to be kind of throughout the Bible this morning. We're going to cover a couple passages as we wrap up our series on approaching God. But uh, we're just going to do that before we go any further in a word of prayer. We're going to step before God and just open up our hearts to him. So if you'll join me, Father God, we love you so much. God, we're so grateful again, just for every single blessing that you have given us. And God, we, we very rarely take the time to reflect and uh, just thank you for everything that you've done. But God, right now, we thank you for this body. We thank you for the freedom that we have to just openly profess your name. God, we, we thank you just for, for everything that you've given us. God, we thank you for your word in our language. That we can open and read and that it is readily available to all of us so that it's not just what I'm saying But we all can see what your word has to say And so god, I just pray that this morning as we get ready to dive into your word Get ready to just see what you have to say Open our hearts to what you have to say god so that we can Confidently come before you And god just be in the relationship that you intended for us to have with you We need you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So, just about a year, a little over a year ago, Heather and I got a puppy. And her name is Allie. She's a little black lab. She's not little anymore. But... uh, Can you hear me now? Good. I feel like I'm on that commercial for U.S. Cellular or Verizon or whoever it was. Okay. Sorry to everybody online. You've heard my voice or seen my lips move, but no voice. But anyways, like I I share that story because with Allie, I I just respond impulsively. And I, I say that because I really believe that there are people who view God in that light. That we don't know how God is going to respond. And so like I said, we're going through this series on uh, approaching God. And we're wrapping it up today where we're going to look at how God's not in control. As how we, when we approach God as if he's not really in control. And we're going to look at that in two different ways. One way that we're going to look at it as if God's not in control. As in God just created the world and then it's like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. Everything is out of control. But then there's the other way that we're going to look at it as well, as in how I respond to Ali and how we think when we sin, we go before God. And it's like, man, I, I really don't know if I can come to God right now because he's, not, he's, he's going to respond out of control. And then we're going to wrap up the series by looking at what ultimately the right approach to God is. And so we're going to start in Genesis in chapter thirty-seven, if you want to flip there, and uh, we're going to cover about thirteen chapters here at the very beginning, because that first view of God being out of control is the view that God is not in control; that He's just, you know, created the world, sin happened, and God was like, "Oh my word." Everything is happening and I I, I got it. It's like whenever you're juggling too many things in your hands and you pick up another one and something falls. It happens to me when I carry laundry all the time. I grab one, another one falls. I grab one, another one falls. And it's like that's how God is with what's going on in the world. We view it that way. Like we bend over or God's reaching down to fix this problem and then another thing pops up over here because we don't think that God is in control. And we see these in common questions that are asked. Questions like this, if God were really in control, why is there war? If God was really in control, why is there death? If God was really in control, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did any of these things happen? And honestly, this is hard even for a lot of Christians to know because we, we, Can't answer. Those are out of our control. And it's hard to know. How could an all loving God allow bad things to happen? But I'm here to tell you that God is in control and that God is still good through everything. That none of those things mean God is not in control. And just look at our story today that we're going to look at right now in Genesis chapter 37. This is the life of Joseph. And so Joseph, he was born to Jacob. He was the second youngest. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was the second youngest, but Joseph was the firstborn to Jacob's true love. Because if you remember, Jacob wanted Rachel, but then he ended up getting Leah through some deception. And then Jacob ended up getting Rachel after seven more years of labor for Laban. And then they're not able to have children. So Jacob sleeps with Leah's maidservant. And then he sleeps with Rachel's maidservant. And he's got ten children, but none with his true love, Rachel. Until finally, God sees Rachel, opens up her womb, and she is able to have a child. He was actually the most loved by his father. Doesn't set things up for his brothers really well. So he, he sees like, man, he's on the top of the world. He's his father's favorite wife's son, and he is his father's favorite son. And then he even has this dream on top of it where God tells Joseph through this dream, hey, all your brothers are going to bow down to you. Not only are they going to bow down to you, your father and your mother will even bow down to you. And so, I mean, yeah, great. Like, I'm going to be influence. influence, Oh, my goodness. I'm going to be an influence on people. Like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to have my family bow down to me. My father, my mother, they're all going to be down. I'm going to be somebody. Like, all right, God, you have spoken. And then things take a turn. Because Jacob tell, or Joseph shares this with his siblings, and his brothers don't like it, obviously. And so they end up beating him up, throwing him in a well, and then instead of killing him, they sell him to some slaves. So you go from being on top to all of a sudden being on bottom. You're sold. You're a slave. I mean, think about, where would you be here? God, you just told me. That I'm going to be the greatest in my family. You just told me that my father, my mother, and all my brothers are going to bow down to me. And now I'm here in this well. And I hear my my brothers talking about what price is actually what I'm worth. Like they're valuing my life based on what they can get out of it. And then I'm here and I'm sold and I'm in slavery and I'm in shackles. And I'm being hauled away to a land that I don't even know. God, where? Where are you in that? God, I thought you were good. I thought you were in control. Apparently not. But then we see Joseph in his story. He gets sold. And then he becomes a slave. And then in slavery, he gets sold to this man named Potiphar, who is like the second in command. He is like the leader of the army. He gets sold to him, and so Joseph works for him, and Potiphar sees how good of a worker Joseph is, and so Potiphar raises him up and says, over my entire household, you can be in charge. Again, great area. And so maybe you're thinking like, all right, God, you said my family would bow down to me. They're not, but this is still pretty good. I mean, as far as things going, I can see your hand at work here, God, but then we see Again, he's on on not necessarily the peak, but he's working his way up. Things are looking good. And then he gets accused of rape. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph. We're told that Joseph is ruddy and handsome. And she sees him. She wants him. And he, being a man of character, says, no, I cannot do that to my master. So she rips off his cloak and she screams and says, he tried to rape me. And Potiphar comes home, hears the story, and has Joseph thrown in prison. Again, God, where are you in that? God, I thought you were in control. But apparently life is just a cycle of circumstances, of coincidences where you might be high, you might be low. And God, you're not really the one in control. And then we're told that there's a grapevine or a a cupbearer and a bread maker in there with Joseph in prison. And Joseph works his way up to becoming, again, in charge of prison. Where the guard, the leader of the prison says, I'm not even going to worry about anything in prison. It's all Joseph's. He can run it. As far as being a slave goes, Joseph is the closest to being free that you can be. But the cupbearer and the bread guy, they both have a dream and Joseph interprets it and the cupbearer's dream comes true and he gets reinstated and Joseph tells him, as you are going to Pharaoh, remind him of who I am. Remember me. But we're told that he was forgotten. We were told that the dream came true, but in chapter 40, verse 23, he was forgotten about and he spent two years in prison. I mean, just think of where you would be in this stance. I'm an innocent man. I've really not done much wrong. And I have spent so long in prison. God told me people would be bowing down to me. God gave me dreams, God gave, or gave me dreams and visions, and gave me the ability to interpret dreams, and yet here I am. God, are you really in control? You must not be, because this is not how you told me things were going to work out. Thanks for the pep talk, it's not working. I mean, that's, that's what would be going through my head. But that's not what was going through Joseph's. Because through all of this, suddenly the cupbearer remembers who Joseph is and he calls to Joseph because uh, Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer remembers, hey, Joseph interpreted my dream. And so Joseph comes out of prison. He tells Pharaoh what to do based on the dream. There's going to be a famine, so you need to start stocking up because through this famine, you're going to be the most uh, powerful nation because all other nations are going to come to you for supplies. And Pharaoh does it, and Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation at this time. And then finally, those brothers that sold him to slavery have to come back and ask Joseph for grain and for supplies. And we're told in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph's attitude through all of this. Joseph, because they were freaking out, they were like, oh man, this is the guy that we sold into slavery. We betrayed him, and he could kill us here on the spot. But instead, Joseph responded, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the question is, was God in control through all of that? Yes. Yes. Joseph was able to look through everything that was going on and still see God is in control. He's not out there just like, oh my goodness, I have no idea. Because what if Joseph was not sold into slavery, then that famine would have come in, and so, would have come, and somebody not as wise as Joseph, not able to interpret the dream, would not have been there. And so, so many nations would have lost so many people. But God in his sovereignty was able to look through it all and see this must happen in order for this to happen. God was in control through it all. What his brothers meant for evil, God took that and meant it for good. God is able to take the bad circumstances of our life where we think, God, you are where? And he's able to take them and say, look through it and look to me and I'll show you, I'm in control. I mean, look at these other verses. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 6. This is in the NIV version because I really like the way that it says it. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. I mean, think of how many times in your life where you're there and you're like, whoa, I did not see that happening. Like, God, I don't know how you worked that out, but you did. That's amazing. And God is saying, what's marvelous to you is not marvelous to me. Like, I got it. I know what's going on. I'm in control. I see all of this working out. I mean, Psalm 27, verse 1 through 5. It says, The Lord is is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Like, man, God is on our side. He is our light and our salvation. Who are we going to be afraid of? Yeah, they might be able to take our life. You know what? We have eternity waiting for us on the other side. Like, God is that in control. That the most, uh, like, the, the worst Thing they can inflict upon our lives is death, but yet God's beyond death. He is that in control. Continuing on, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And then verse 13 and 14, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why? Because God's in control. God knows what's going on. The craziness that's going on in the world, COVID did not catch God by surprise. COVID didn't have God like, oh my goodness, I need a plan B right now because I, plan A, is just thrown out the window. Political turmoil, social turmoil, civil turmoil, national turmoil, whatever it is, does not catch God by surprise. He is still in control. And so he tells us, wait for him. Stand strong in the Lord and wait for him. I mean, Job. If anybody's life would seem like they could point a finger at God and say, God, I don't know if you're in control. Joseph and Job are two big ones that come to my mind. Job 16.33 or no, not Job, John. Sorry, Job's life is that way too. I don't have a reference from Job, but just look at his whole life. And it's like, God, are you in control? Job 38 through 41 has God pretty much saying, yes, I am in control because I can tell the horse where to go and give the horse his power. I can tell the wind where to blow and where not to blow. I tell the seas don't come any further than this. I tell the sun when to rise and when to set. I am the most powerful and I am in control. But then John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells us, I I have said these things. You know what? You're going to have trouble. But I tell you these things that you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm in control. I know what's going on. I am greater than anything this world has to throw at you. I'm greater in the sense of like, man, I'm more powerful. I'm stronger, but I'm also greater in the sense of I'm better. I am God. And then lastly, Proverbs 16, 4 through 9. It says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked... For the day of trouble, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And man, that is a big one. You look at the world today and it's like, man, wicked is running like crazy. Wicked, it it seems like evil is winning. And God's like, uh uh-uh, there is going to come a day where wicked will be no more. And so he says, Even the wicked will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is still in control. so we should not be approaching God as if He is not the almighty, all-sovereign God. Because He is. He is in control. But another way that we view that God is not in control is really in kind of how we approach Him. Because if we think that God's like just like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Then we're not really going to come to Him. But sometimes we still believe God is in control, but His responses are not in control. He's super temperamental. He just flings off with his emotions. He's just ready for, man, that one sin. And I got this lightning bolt, and I'm ready to just zap him whenever they commit that next sin. And we're scared because then we commit that sin, and it's like, oh, God, I don't, I don't know how to come to you because I'm, I'm scared of you, honestly. I don't know how you're going to respond. You're too unpredictable. Just as I lose my temper with our dog. We worry that God loses his temper with us. That we can come to God and be like, God, I love you. You're so good. God, all glory to you. And then, God, I got the sin that I have to confess to you. Please don't get me this time. Please don't zap me. Please don't let the walls of this building fall on top of me. Because we don't know how God is going to respond. Look at all the religions of the world. And this is a lot of their common views. I mean, look at Islam. Islam. Where what they are doing is they don't even know if they're saved or not. They, they just hope, man, at the end of this life, if I can be good enough, if I can do good enough. But what if I haven't? And I don't really know if I have or have not because Allah hasn't really told me. And I'm a little scared, so I'm just going to try not to tick Allah off. I mean, that's how Islam's kind of live out their life. We don't know how Allah's going to respond to us. Look at Hinduism. Where they think, all right, if I'm good enough in this life, maybe in the next life, I don't have to go back to being a cricket. Like reincarnation, I get to go on to something better. Ultimately, maybe I'll become a cow sometime. It's like, man, let's let's go that if I'm good enough. But I don't really know. I don't know how the reincarnation gods are going to view me. They're a little uncontrollable, unpredictable, because I thought Brother Bob over there was really good, but all of a sudden he's over here as this mouse rat, and I, man, I don't know what's going on. Like, we view God like that. Or look at Judaism, even, where they're trying to live according to Old Testament law, and it's like, hey, you got to keep these, and you better not break enough of them. Because we we don't really know which one's that breaking point. Is it 70%? Schools gave you that passing grade. 69%? You failed? Like, sorry, you were so close. Not good enough. We don't know. And these these religions don't give us assurance. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us assurance of who God is. Because the sad thing is, is that we do allow those views to creep into our faith. I mean, I've, I, I can look back at my life countless times where, again, it's I know God is telling me this is what my will is. This is, Andy, this, this is what I want for you. And it's like, God, I'm not going that way. I'm going to follow myself. And then all of a sudden, it all falls apart. And you know what my number one response is usually? I'm going to read this many verses today, and God, I promise I'll be better next time. And God, I'll I'll say my prayers a little bit more, and I'll have a little bit more quiet time, and I start making it about superstition. It's like, God, if, if I can fill these boxes in, maybe then you won't be mad at me. Maybe then you won't take out your vengeance upon me. We play games hoping not to tick God off to the point where he removes salvation from us. Because we don't know how he's going to respond. But the truth is, God's word tells us how God responds to us. His word is full of it. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. This is where David slept with Bathsheba and then got her pregnant and then killed her husband, his best friend. And then Nathan comes to him and says, You're this guilty man. And David responds with this. He says, God, you will not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it to you. God, you're not looking for some superstition. You're not looking for me to try and be better or anything like that. Otherwise, I'd give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. God, what you want, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God, you you don't want me to just go through some external motions. What you want is for my heart to be changed for you. You want me. And then Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. What's these next words? The faithful God. God. That faithful means that we can trust him, that what his word says is true about him, that he's not sitting up there like super temperamental, but he is true. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And then Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, Jesus is talking to his followers and he says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? He says, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Because there's a lot of people who are like, God, I want to ask you for something, but really I don't trust you. And God is saying, Look, even earthly fathers who are evil provide for their children. How much more is the all loving father going to provide for his children? He loves his children. Then. We're told in Hebrews 12, 4 through 12, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees." And so we can go to God confidently because, yes, there is going to be discipline because we are sinners. We still just follow the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body. But God disciplines us, and it's a good thing because he loves us. Because what good father, earthly father, does not discipline their child? Says, hmm, I see you heading for destruction. I'm just going to let you keep going. would say that's not a good father. That's a bad dad. But yet God sees us heading for destruction and he says, I care about you too much. I'm going to rein you back in. It's going to hurt. There's going to be some pruning, but I'm bringing you back in because I love you and I care for you. And it's because of these things that Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 7, God gave us not a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. So we don't have to go to God like, God, I'm afraid you're just not going to discipline me, but you're going to like exact revenge and vengeance upon me. But Paul tells us, no, we don't have a spirit of fear. But we get to come to God. And then lastly, Romans 8.15, Paul again talks about that spirit. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear of worry about being whipped and beaten and abused. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so that's how I want to close today. With the right view of God. Because we've talked about God being distant or distracted or disappointed or not even really God. And now we've talked about how he might respond out of control. Those are all wrong views of God. The true view of God is that he's the perfect father. You know, God has nothing but love for his children. He's not out of control, but instead he responds with pure love. Because, you know, an out-of-control God, when we sinned, an out-of-control God might have been like, that's it, zap, they're gone. No more humans. But instead, what did God do? Romans 5, 8. He shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the good, perfect Father did for you. Not wiping you out, but instead saying, I'm going to send my son to die for them. You see, God wants to be with his children. God longs to be with you, in relationship with you. That is his desire. He comforts us in our times of need and despair. Romans 8:15, again, it said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Father. And then Psalm one hundred three thirteen. God says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God loves you. God has compassion for you. He wants to be with you. Any other view of God is not the right view of God. Because you see, here's the thing. God knows everything about you. Like, think about that for a moment. Like, God doesn't just know what everybody else knows about you. God knows every single detail about you, which freaks me out. I mean, like I heard it explained one time, I don't believe it's true, but when you get to heaven, there's going to be a projector on a wall, and it's going to project all your thoughts, all your actions. It is going to project every deep, dark, disgusting thing you have thought, said, or done. And it's like, I, don't, I, I know, like God, can that not ever happen? And I don't believe it will. Because as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. And so I always had that fear of that, but he knows what I don't want projected on that wall. Like even though I'm trying to tear down the screen, God knows what's up there. And yet he loves me and he cares for me. And the same is true for you. He loves you regardless of what you've done, regardless of those thoughts that you have. He still loves you. But he also wants what's best for you. And he wants you to grow to become his children. And he stopped at nothing to be in relationship with you. Knowing entirely what was going on in your head, stopped at nothing. You know, there's a controversial song Reckless love. It made it on like Christian radio. And it really became like this hot topic button in churches. Because a lot of people hated the word that was used there for God's love. Reckless. Because they're like, God's love isn't reckless. Because they view reckless, meaning God has no idea what he's doing. But he's just going like crazy to help us. That he's going to just be reckless. And to the world, I would say... That's how it appears. But you see, to God, it wasn't reckless. I mean, like I imagine whenever I have a kid, if that kid starts choking on something or, or needs to go to the hospital, and they're like, hey, the ambulance, it's going to be 30 minutes before it gets to you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grab that kid. I'm getting in that car, and we're going zero to as fast as that car will go. But I'm not going outside of my means Of being a, I'm not a good driver, so the analogy falls apart right there. But it's like, you know, I'm going to stay in my ability. But it's like, I don't care about no speeding tickets. I don't care what this might inflict on me. I am going to save my child, knowing full well what is happening. That's how I see what God is. It's like, man, this is going to cost my son his life, but I am sending him. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to be to the point that I have to turn my back on my son because he's going to take all the sin of the world upon him. But I know what's happening, but I'm doing it anyways. I mean, that looks totally reckless to us. But God's saying, I will stop at nothing. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God stopped at nothing. He is that good of a father. Anytime you think, all right, I got to get superstitious with my relationship with God and start making it about religion and about like doing all these religious righteous acts. I encourage you look to the cross. Because the cross shows you it's not anything that we've done. It's everything that Jesus did. I mean, that is why we remember communion. Why we partake in the Lord's table all the time. Because we constantly need to be reminded, it's not about what I've done. It's not about what I'm doing or what I will do. It's about who Jesus is and what he did. I mean, God gave his only son... So that we can have a personal relationship. Not some distant, God, I'm praying to the air, but a personal relationship. Galatians 4, 6 tells us that we can call him Abba, Father. That we get to just say, hey, the Spirit's interceding for us, and we can just say Abba, Father. That is like saying the equivalent, Dad, I need you. I'm hurting And I'm not going to run away from you. I'm going to run to you. Because, Dad, my heart hurts and I I need you. Abba, Father. I mean, I love reading through Hebrews because it tells us how we can approach God. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have... Confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Skip down a couple verses. Verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That we can confidently, we don't have to come in fear like, God, I don't know. We confidently come and say, God, I need you. And he hears us. We can go before him. Why? To jump back a couple series ago? because god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life that's how we know we can confidently come to him you see any other view that you might have about god is wrong he is the good father who longs longs even even when you are feeling god tugging on your heart saying don't do it Don't do it like God's convicting you. Don't, don't do it. And you go for it. Even then God is saying, come back to me. I want to be in relationship with you. I love you. Repent of that. Let's see my way is so much better. Follow me. He longs to be with you because he is the good father. Again, Romans 8 31 tells us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? I mean, God is for you. He loves you. He cares for you. Who can be against you? You can look at the armies that surround you. Nope, not going to fear that. You can look at death in the eye and say, I'm not going to fear that. Because God is for me and he has conquered death. Because he loves me. He is the good father. He wants to be the good father to you. And John tells us, in John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him. This is how you get to be a child of God. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so if if you have done that, if you've received him, and you're believing in him, Kurt, again, going to come up, and I felt fitting to close this series where God is the good father with good, good father. And I want you to, as we're singing this song, just dwell on the words of it, that God is the good father. I mean, if you've received him and have believed in him, he's the good father and live in that. But then also, if you have not received him, if you are not believing in him, then he also says, hey, come to me. It's open and I will be the good father to you. It's easy. I mean, it, there's literally nothing that you have to do other than accept Jesus as your Savior. And He's saying, I'm available. I'm ready. I'm here today. I'm drawing you close. If you feel that tugging in your heart, that is God drawing you to relationship with Him. Don't delay in responding to it. Father God, we thank you again for who you are. God, we, we thank you that. You are the good Father. We thank you that you, you just love us unconditionally. And God, I just pray that for those who have received and believe and are walking with you, God, let us just not take on these other views of you, but let us confidently approach your throne and see you for who you are. And then, God, I pray if there's anybody in the room who has not given their life over to you, God, just work in their hearts. If they're feeling that tug, give them the courage to respond, to give everything over to you and to see that, God, you are worthy of it all. We love you so much, God. We just trust that you're at work. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.